Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and a laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear." In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, nothing from par- doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Lord, we pray for your guidance and we thank you for providing leadership for your church and as we read about how that should be organized and how it should be set up and how it should be dealt with and handled we pray lord that you would help us to see your words your heart and your desire behind this instruction we have for us tonight lord Lord, we want your church to be healthy and whole and one that looks to you in all things. And so as we study this, we ask for you to fill us with your spirit that we might be led by your spirit to be consistent with what your word says. In your name, amen. It is an interesting jump that he makes from widows to elders. (laughs) But for me, and here in 1 Timothy, it's one of the reasons why I think that that widow indeed category has to do with an official office within the congregation. Because he immediately moves into, here's how the leadership should be structured. But he begins with elders. Let those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. First thing, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We don't see a multiplicity of offices given to us in the scripture. We see a few, a handful of offices. We see, or pardon me, just two, deacon, elder, slash pastor. And there are other areas and arenas where people serve But those are the only two. Here in, though, the elder category, there are some who, although they're required to be able to preach, don't always do the preaching and the teaching. There are some elders who 
regularly aren't involved in that. Brian, he's a decent example. He's not up here preaching every Sunday and teaching every Sunday. Can he? Absolutely. You've heard him preach and teach before. But he's, that's not his regular pattern. His regular pattern of eldership here at Sovereign Joy is more of a ruling elder, one who works in the life of the church to bring health to the church as we lead and guide the way we think the Lord would have us function in this church. So there are elders who can teach who don't always have only the responsibility of preaching and teaching. And there are other elders who do preach and teach, and that's their primary responsibility. Well, the people who are in leadership are considered worthy of double honor. I I read so many different ideas about what this double honor is. It seems to me pretty straightforward, especially in light of where he goes. But let me give you a couple of other interpretations, I guess, of what this is. It's just literally honoring somebody. It doesn't have anything to do with financial anything. It doesn't have anything to do with material anything. It just literally means, oh, I just honor that person a little more. Maybe I will, you know, think more highly of him or I'll give him the better seat at a play. I give him honor and I show him honor. I only speak good of that person and never ill. Maybe that kind of thing. There are some who just hold that particular view. There are some who say that this has to do with that kind of double honoring, but also in some small sense has to do with some kind of material exchange, meaning I'm going to show you honor at the potluck and Brian's going to get a double portion of meatloaf where everybody else only gets one. Oddly enough, that's an interpretation that some people take of this passage. So it doesn't have anything to do with payment, but it has to do with, hey, when there's stuff being given out, give a little more to the dude, right? Okay. I don't think that's what this is referring to at all. (laughs) I think clearly as he goes on here, it's talking about that the fact that people who preach the word of God and teach the word of God and lead the church of God should be ones who do get paid from their work in doing the ministry. Verse 18 is a great example. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. First of all, love that I'm called an ox. Fantastic. Just a beast of burden. It fits. I receive that fully well. This is a crazy spot. Have you read Deuteronomy 25 recently in your daily devotions, right? Y'all been there? Look at Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25. I hope you get... I, I think the Lord chuckles when he does this kind of thing. The first part talks about disputes between individuals in chapter 25. If there's a dispute between men and they come into the court and the judge decides between them acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then the guilty man deserves to be beaten. The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in the presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes, then these your brother will be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, talking about laws concerning marriage. Just right in the middle, 
of beating a guy up who, you know, giving him the lashes and here's how you should get married. There's this little nugget thrown in there. Oh yeah, and don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, oftentimes in the Middle East, they would use oxen, beast of burden, like I said, in order to smash the grain. They would roll these big, huge grinding stones over the wheat, and they would walk just around and around in a circle as people would continue to shovel grain down underneath the path of this big millstone, and they would grind it out. Well, a lot of cultures would muzzle the ox to keep it going, to keep it just on and on and on. God tells the people of Israel in the middle of this odd place, don't do that. It's going to make the ox go slower, right? He's going to slow down and reach down and get some grain. But he's eating as he's going. He's being provided for as he's doing the work. So God here in his kindness, in his mercy, is giving this principle to the people of Israel, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament where Paul takes this passage and applies it to pastors. He also does it in 1 Corinthians. We'll look at that in a little while. But here, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. You get the picture? First of all, I love the way that the apostolic writers can go back into the Old Testament and read passages like this and go, oh, this applies to us here today. It, it causes us, it should cause us to be very careful when we force a wooden literal interpretation of that passage. There's this one phrase that people use oftentimes, you know, um, something about God has given you a future and a hope, right? It's from Jeremiah chapter 9. And then the, the, oftentimes the person who's critical of using that passage jokes and says, oh yeah, how was the Babylonian captivity for you? Right, Because the direct immediate passage has application to the people who were brought out from the Babylonian captivity. Absolutely, for sure, true. Does that mean it has no application at all for anybody else anywhere? Well, if we're going to say the muzzling the ox passage only has to do with oxen and their work in treading out the grain, then we would be inclined to say yes. But Paul doesn't seem to think so. So we want to be careful that when we're doing our interpretation of Scripture, that we're allowing for an apostolic interpretation, and we're also allowing for there to be application for us who live in our modern day and age, who love the Lord, and who are the called according to his purposes. But that was just a little side note. That was bonus. The Scripture says, here's why people who work in the ministry of the Word of God, in the preaching And in the teaching, whoever they are, wherever they are, there are many good Bible-believing churches here in the city of Chico. We wouldn't agree with every single thing all of them have to say all of the time, but there are good Bible-believing, born-again believers who are pastoring these churches, and they should be paid for the work that they are doing, wherever they're at. It's a good thing that they're doing. They should be compensated for it. And so the scripture here says we shouldn't muzzle an ox and the laborer is deserving or deserves his wages. In Luke chapter 10 and also in Matthew chapter 10, but let's look in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is sending out his apostles 
He's sending them out to preach that the kingdom of God has come. He's sending them out and he tells them, don't take any staff, don't take this, don't take that. And here's rules for your journey as you're out there. But he says this in, let's see, verse 8. Now let's back up, verse 6. If a son of peace is there in the house that you enter in, peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the house that same hour, eating and drinking whatever they provide for. A laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. When you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of this town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, to know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So in their ministry of going out and preaching and performing miracles, they're to go into the house of somebody there in the town. You don't know how that works. It's a, if you could picture Chico in ancient days, okay? And I was to come walking into town with my staff and I got, you know, somebody alongside me, and we're coming two by two into town, I would go into where we would call the city plaza, right? That little square there where we have a lot of the Thursday night farmer's market stuff happens. I would go down there, and that's where all of the cultural hubbub would be happening. There would be shopping, there would be selling, there would be people talking about the word, rabbis would be there, there would be all kinds of things going on there at the city plaza. So I would make my way there. I would begin to start preaching this message. Some people would gather around in here. And now cultural hospitality of the day would usually require somebody to say, hey, if you don't have somewhere to stay, come stay at my house. And so Jesus says here that that person would be obligated to put them up, stay at their house, feed them, shelter them. And they're supposed to stay there the whole time. And be supported because it says here, a laborer is worthy and deserves his wages. So here we have from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Here we have the New Testament, Jesus' own words, both in Matthew chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 10, teaching us that those who preach the gospel, those who work in the laboring of the ministry of the word of God, are worthy of being paid for their work. In 1 Corinthians 9, I mentioned that a little while ago, Paul is being attacked for his work and his theology. And one of the points of attack from the enemies of the gospel was that, that Paul was setting up this system where people were going to get paid for the preaching of the gospel. There are some churches even still today that would say, no, a preacher shouldn't get paid at all. There are some cults that teach that same thing. So like the LDS church, for example, they would look down and I've had conversations with some guys who look down upon a person like me who's a pastor and does get paid for his work. But especially those who do it full time, they're really looked down upon. But Paul here gives a defense. He says, don't I have a right to eat and drink? Don't I have a right to take on a believing wife just like the Lord said and the brothers of the Lord and the Apostle Peter? Is it only Barnabas who, and I who have the right from refraining from earning a living? 
Doesn't a soldier soldier but not at his own expense? Doesn't the person who plant a vineyard eat of its fruit? Doesn't someone who tends a flock get the milk from the flock? Now, do I say these things on my own authority? Or doesn't the law say these very same things? It's written in the law, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, is it with oxen that God is concerned? Does he not also certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in the hope and the thresher should thresh in the hope of partaking or sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things? If others share in this rightful claim to you, do not even we more. Nevertheless, we, Paul and Barnabas, have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, I remember hearing about a preacher one time. He was at a big conference and somebody asked him, raised their hand and asked him a question about um, compensation for the pastor. And apparently this one church that this guy was a part of, he, they had thought, well, we want to keep the preacher humble. So they looked up what poverty level was for their town and their area. And that's what they paid him and no more. And they wouldn't let him go out and get another job or be bivocational. They required him to be full-time and to live at poverty level. And that, the guy who was answering the question, just thought was absolutely crazy. They're, they're shooting themselves in the foot. If the person is giving spiritual food to the people who need it, if the person is preaching the word of God, then here, those who proclaim the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ should get their living from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's hard to preach this, but for me, personally, it sounds self-promoting. But it's not, because I know that not everybody's going to be in this church everywhere at all times. And going out somewhere else, you want to know that this is a good and right and healthy principle. Wherever you go, wherever pastors are proclaiming and preaching and teaching, the word of God, this is a good and right thing. That the laborer's deserving of his wages and the oxes he's treading out the grain deserves to eat from what he's working on. Now, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God. In Luke chapter 13, there's this interesting little parable. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Verse 7. So he said to the vine dresser, Pluck, for three years now I've come seeking fruit from this fig tree, and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be using up my ground? Well, the vine dresser said, Sir, let it alone one more year. I'm going to dig around it. 
I'm going to put manure on it. I'm going to tend it. And if it should bear fruit next year, well, good. And if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. Jesus here gives us a principle of understanding and grace. And I think Paul's doing the very same thing here. Now, it might not sound like it initially. It sounds like, well, if there's a charge against him, you need two or three witnesses. But get this. The point is, there's not a higher standard set for the pastor and the elder. There's not like a super level for them. We looked at this when we looked at the qualifications of the elder, how that every single thing that was required of a person who's an elder is also required of just a regular believer except being able to preach and to teach. And Paul continues that standard here where he says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the same principle from Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's the same principle Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18. It's the same principle that Paul brings up about his accusers in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He's here saying, Don't treat the elders differently. Don't get, there's not a higher standard for them or a lesser standard. Well, if one witness comes and says something, oh, well then because they're the elder, you're supposed to take it at face value. Or no, you need five or six. No, he's saying it's the exact same charge. Don't treat them differently. Don't treat them in a way that is over and above because he tells them they're worthy of double honor, don't all of a sudden assume, oh, well, I couldn't think, the, think that of them. Instead, receive that. If there's two or three witnesses, Matthew 18 is clear, right? And Jesus there, in Matthew 18, he's talking about the whole church. He's not talking about individuals in the church, but the whole congregation. And he says, if somebody has a complaint or a sin against somebody else there to go to that person one-on-one and try to work it out individually and if they don't then take two or three people with them this is the two or three witnesses so that an issue so that a matter so that a thing is established and if the person doesn't repent or doesn't seek forgiveness or does there isn't restoration when there's two or three witnesses now involved then you're supposed to go and tell it to the church so that the whole church pursues that person so that they'll repent. It isn't like a we gotcha moment. It is a we want you to repent, which is why he goes on to say, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. You see, the assumption is maybe there is two or three people that saw him doing something wrong and they come to him and he repents. Praise God. But if he persists in sin, then he tells you what you're supposed to do. And it's no different than any other believer. It's exactly what Matthew 18 lies out. Rebuke them in the presence of all that the rest may stand in fear. That's not a bad thing. If I'm in sin, we're talking about money, okay. Let's say somehow I got my hands in the coffer. I got myself in the money pot, right? I got myself access to the bank account which I don't have, so that's why this is a good example, I think. Let's say I got access to that, and I started taking a little thing here out, taking a little bit more out here, taking a little bit out here, and nobody was any the wiser for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden Nick got wise to it, and Nick's like, wait a second, what's going on here, Pat? He comes to me, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you're crazy, dude. No, you got your numbers wrong. 
So then he goes to somebody else and says, here, there's something going on here. They come to me. They say, hey, here's what we see going on. Mathematic, we can do the math ourselves and see what's going on here. So what's going on here? And I still don't repent. Then you rebuke me in the presence of everybody. You tell it to the church. And the point is that hopefully I repent then. But you want to tell it to the church because everyone should have a holy fear of God. A holy fear of his rebuke. A holy fear of his judgment. I should be so... I really should be so in love with the Lord and his word and his people that that kind of thing doesn't cross my mind. But if it did and I were rebuked, I should still be so in love with the Lord and his church that I'm quick to repent. But if I'm not, then you tell it to everybody. And if it's true for me and it's true for everyone else in the congregation, that brings a godly reverence and a godly healthy fear of the Lord. And it is in all honesty, a good thing. Church discipline is no fun. It's hard. People, I mean, we've, we've went all the way through the process one time. And when we did that, we had family leave because the woman in the family said, well, what are you going to do? You're going to sniff out my sin next and kick me out of the church? And there was no amount of explaining this biblical procedure to help her to understand that. She just saw it as we were just being mean. There's always going to be that. There's always going to be an element of people that just see you as being mean. But the truth of the matter is that we need to fear the Lord more than we fear people. And if we fear the Lord, then we're going to order the church rightly. One of the reasons why elders are considered worthy of double honor is because they're willing to say and do the hard things that need to be done. And church discipline is one of those hard things that needs to be done. You want a man who is able to follow through with church discipline, receive church discipline when it comes up, not somebody who is obfuscating and trying to get away from guilt and shame. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules with our prejudicing and doing nothing from partiality. It'd be very easy for Timothy to have a buddy that he had raised up and laid hands on and had fallen into sin and to not want to say something or do something and to confront him. But he's saying that before God, before Jesus Christ, before the elect angels, keep these rules. Don't be partial. Show no man partiality. When something comes up, deal with it. It's a hard thing. And Timothy was a, a, he was a timid guy. And so I imagine getting this hard word from the Apostle Paul was probably, we don't know, but maybe there was something he was specifically getting at in the context of the church that Timothy would have understood. But we don't have the details because the Holy Spirit understands those aren't necessary for us. We just need the principles so that we can act it out. But here he tells them, don't be prejudiced and don't be partial in your laying out of these rules. And it'd be hard. I mean, the, the, in the life of our church, there had been some people I would have had no problem going through and rebuking. And there are others that I'd have a hard time doing it. 
And I imagine there's people who would have an easy time rebuking me and some who would have a harder time rebuking me. That's just who we are as people. We need to be reminded that what's at stake is the purity of the church, the purity of the preached word. You can imagine if this kind of thing is not handled and taken care of, what comes out of this pulpit is going to be skewed. And as you all are going to hear a word and it's not going to be received by the, by the, in the way that it should be received in the power of the Holy Spirit that's received because there's sin going on and stuff isn't being handled and dealt with from the leadership level. Now there are some churches that are huge and big and we look at them and we see all kinds of problems and we know those pastors are doing it wrong. How can this be? Well, when we get to 2 Timothy, we find that there are people who are in congregations who gather to themselves, teachers, to tickle their itching ears. Meaning, say to them the things that they want to hear. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are big, huge churches that are just in all manner of error. We shouldn't think, oh, well... This must not apply to them or something. It does. They're going to be accountable for it. But we want to be people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But at the same time, we want to, at the right time, be able to handle things in the way that we find here without prejudice and without partiality. And then he goes on in verse 22 here, and he says, Don't be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. Now, actually, let me read 24 and 25, and then we'll come back to 23. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going on before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also some good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. I think that verses 23 and 24 give us the instruction for how we're supposed to see people in leadership raised up. Namely, go real slow. (laughs) Go real slow, be patient, give them time, let's see their character, Don't just bring somebody right in and go, wow, they look so good. Hey, they preached two messages and I felt warmed in my heart. Let's bring them right in and lay hands on them and just, oh, this is delightful. Oh, somebody just got saved? Well, we need somebody in the youth ministry right now. Let's get you on in there and you can be the youth pastor. Now, I've heard stories of where that's worked out well. Those are the exceptions. (laughs) That's not the way you're supposed to function. The sins of some people are conspicuous. You're not going to lay hands on those people. But the sins of others appear later. Go slow. To lay hands on somebody hastily, bringing them up here, ordaining them, putting them into the service somehow, some way, could really do more damage to them than it does good for the body. I understand the temptation to want to say, oh, well, let's let's affirm you. Great, you love Jesus, but the truth is time will tell. That's the principle we find in verses 24 and 25. Good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. They won't remain hidden for long. So don't be hasty in laying on of hands, and don't take part in the sins of others. Their meaning, don't lay hands on somebody who is in some kind of sin. Go slow, keep yourself pure. 
right? I would be able to open myself up to accusation if I were to lay hands on somebody hastily and they prove to be, well, here going on before them to judgment, maybe not even saved. You know, there's that parable of the, the weeds that, pardon me, the, the 20, 30, 100 fold, you know, and some fell among the rocks, the seed, and some fell among the hard ground. And, you know, there's that one that looks really good and starts to grow until the weeds choke it out, right? Well, it'd be very easy for somebody to come in and look really good and looks like they're starting to grow. Lay hands on them, put them in ministry while the cares of this world come and choke them out. And you're like, oh, well, it doesn't just do damage to that person if they're in the service of the church. It does damage to the entire congregation. And so we want to be careful that we, pastors, ministers, keep ourselves pure for the sake of the entire congregation. It's beneficial to us all to go real slow. It isn't sexy. It isn't cool. It might not even be fun to go slow and be patient, but it's wise and it's right because it keeps us pure. Now, verse 23, lastly, no longer drink water, but little use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I'm going to be honest. I read all kinds of things about this passage here, the whole thing, I mean. Verse 23, boy, oh boy. No, I, you'd think nobody has any idea what these Greek words actually mean. <laughs> the way somebody, some people were trying to explain away, there's no way Paul was telling him to actually take wine. There's no way. There's something else going on here for sure. And then there are others that say, oh, it's a different kind of wine. It just isn't the same thing. Or some others saying, oh, it was this or it was that. Or he, somebody was saying, oh, well, you're supposed to take the, the wine and mix it with water. I, I could, really, I was shocked by how many people tried to get away from just clearly what it's saying. I don't know if the water in Ephesus was particularly just doing him dirty or if it was like, you know, you go down to Mexico, you hear don't drink the water kind of thing because it's going to do everybody wrong. You know, I don't know if it's like that. Nobody seemed to know exactly what it was. But the point is, is that he was telling him, hey, go, it's okay to drink some wine for your stomach's sake. I like that he put keep yourself pure and then immediately goes on to tell him to drink some wine. I think that's inspired by the spirit. <laughs> because I think if it was in any other context, I think this is the reason why so many people had so much to say about it that they couldn't believe he would be t- telling him to keep himself pure and at the same time drinking wine. Listen, drinking wine is not a sin. Drinking is not a sin. Drunkenness is. It's real easy. <laughs> in fact, we read the psalm for the call to worship this morning that told us wine was given to us by God to gladden the heart. There's a right purpose and a right place and a right time for it. For Timothy here, it is for medicine's sake. Now, maybe he was doing one of those fundamentalist knee-jerk reaction things and like, I'm never going to take any wine, you know? And Paul has to come alongside and go, no, dude, it's okay. And sometimes we need that. Somebody to come along and tell us, well, your pendulum swung a little bit too far this way. Come on back here. That's a good and healthy thing. It's one of the things that a good leader should be able to do when they sit down and talk with people. 
But as we come to the end of this, what we find is that leadership is vitally important in the life of the church. God saved his people by dying for their sins and rising from the dead to prove that their salvation was secured for all eternity. And now the responsibility, the stewardship has been given to leadership to take care of those people, shepherd them, feed them, encourage them, teach them, help them grow all along the way. It's vitally important. If God loves you that much that he was willing to die for your sins, for both your sake and his glory's sake, then I have the responsibility, the weighty responsibility of making sure I don't take lightly what comes out of this pulpit and what comes to you when I'm talking with you one-on-one from the pages of sacred scripture. If I do that, and if a pastor does that, we're worthy of double honor. If we do that, then we should be quick to we could should be quick to repent when we're rebuked if we do that then we should be doing our work without partiality and without prejudice if we do that we should be slow and cautious in our laying on of hands and approving of others and at the bottom at the end of the day that our good works should go before us and be evident to all all for the sake of god his glory and the gospel of jesus christ lord We thank you that even a passage like this, which can seem like a lot of work involved in it and a lot to do with it, that we can find that your word is given to us so that we might grow thereby. Lord, may we be thankful for godly leaders. I am. I'm thankful for the leaders in my life who follow you and follow your word and your ways. And they are an example to me. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be that and that we would, as we continue on as a church, look for people who are godly in their leadership as well. And wherever you take us in our lives, Lord, may we always be looking for those kind of men to lead and to guide us and perhaps even call us to that ministry someday, Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy through the gospel of your son that you've given to us and that our salvation is sure and in you. I pray that we would rejoice in that work of salvation you've done in us, Lord. In your name, amen.